Shifeng, whose palanquin was nearest to Grandmother Jia's, realized that her maid Faithful and the other maids were too far back in the procession to be able to reach the old lady in time to help her out, and hurried forward to perform this service herself. Unfortunately, a little 11 or 12-year-old acolyte, who had been going round with a pair of snuffers trimming the wicks of the numerous candles that were burning everywhere, and whom the arrival of the procession had caught unawares, chose this very moment to attempt a getaway and ran head-on into her. In an instant, out flew Shifeng's hand and dealt him a resounding smack on the face that sent him flying. everybody welcome back to another installation of rereading the stone this is kevin wilson joined as always by william jones hello today we're going to deal with chapter 29 in which the greatly blessed pray for yet greater blessings and the highly strung rise to new heights of passion uh this is kind of an interesting chapter um so what do you think uh any first impressions or you want to do the uh you want to do the rundown first, the uh, kind of the, the recap and review. Yeah, sure, sure. The recap, thankfully, is mercifully quite short. Uh, so in the last chapter, 28, um, um, we'd left Baoyu on the ground weeping after hearing Dayu singing this very tragic song. Mm. Uh, she sees him and sneaks off, uh, and then he eventually pulls himself together and follows. He catches up with her. And, you know, they, they have a little argument. He wants to know why she chooses to ignore him instead of telling him her feelings. You know, and he says she can she can get angry, but please don't ignore him. Anyway, in a subsequent scene, Baoyu and his mother and various others are discussing medicine for Dayu. And he suggests some kind of frankly ludicrous medicine. Uh, he looks around for, for others to back him up, including Dayu and his other cousin, Baochai. But neither of them gives him the um, the kind of vindication he's looking for. Um, sometime later, uh, he goes for dinner with uh, his cousin Xuepan, um at the house of the son of a, a general, uh, Feng Ying, uh, with a couple of others. And while they're at the dinner party, Bao Yu proposes a a drinking game involving poetry composition. So uh, everyone manages to complete the game except for Xuepan. Um but during the game we get quite a lot of illustration of the characters maybe kind of inner desires fears and and hopes uh also at the the dinner uh Bao Yu meets one of the other guests uh, an actor named uh Jiang Yuhan mm. and exchanges 
belts or sashes with him as a, as a gesture of friendship. Um, when Value gets home, he realizes the belt that he gave away wasn't his, but his maid, Aromas, uh, and she, she's kind of angry with him. To make it up to her, he tries to gift her the belt that he received, and she's not very pleased with this, but she reluctantly accepts it uh, and stashes it away. And then at the end of the chapter, the family receives some gifts from the Imperial Palace. One of the young women of the household, uh, Jia Yuanchun, was made an Imperial concubine some time previously, um, and she periodically sends gifts uh, and other things back to her her family uh, home. Um, and in this case, there are lots of different types of gift packages for people of different kind of standing within the household. Um, anyway, Bao Yu um, receives the same gifts as his cousin Bao Chai, but not the same as Dai Yu. And so this causes a bit of a squabble because mm -hmm. there's this, this kind of implication that Bao Yu and Bao Chai are intended to be married by this gesture. Anyway, he, he goes to speak to Dai Yu uh, and a, a fight erupts, which is then interrupted by Bao Chai. Um, Bao Yu is temporarily transfixed by Bao, Bao Chai's beauty until Dai Yu flicks him in the eye with her handkerchief. Uh, and mm. there ends the, the chapter. Uh, in this chapter, um, we have the resolution of that scene. Um, and then the whole family and almost all of the, the servants go off en masse to visit a temple to make offerings but also to watch some plays and while they're at the temple various interesting things happen uh, and then eventually they return and on return Balyu and Dayu again get into an argument <laughs> this time this time of the kind of blazing variety you know this mm. is a quite quite a big one um, and that's where we leave the chapter so yeah impressions overall what do you what do you think you know, this chapter feels to me kind of like a day in the life, even though because, you know, you know, these lives are so kind of grand, you know, it, it's a day in a kind of a kind of a regal, uh, eloquent life, you know, uh, but yeah. at the same time, you see a lot of like squabbling and awkwardness and pettiness. Um, so it's kind of a, it's also behind the scenes. It's kind of deconstructing the illusion of uh like wealth and privilege you know mm. um there's also some yeah. really kind of interesting kind of sociological details that we i think i hope we can highlight uh and also some kind of um some subtle like hints as to things that might be about to happen uh as to you know important relationships uh that we haven't seen too much of but which are going to be more important later on um, a little bit of symbolic material, um, but overall, it, it seems as if it's. It, it feels to me like a, a day in the life, um, mm. and we can talk about whether you know the uh, the argument between Bao Yu and Dai Yu at the end is kind of a run of the mill argument for them, or whether it's a like a new stage in their in the dialectic of their arguing. You know, like, uh, it has a kind of like. A, extremely reflexive like well you expect this of me but i expect this of you and it feels a little bit like you're you're stuck in of like uh uh like hegelian treatise <laughs> I, I i do think so yeah it's very much like you think <laughs> that i think that you think but in fact i think that you think that i think that you think that kind of you know that level of, of complexity 
I, I generally agree. I, I, I do also think that, um, yeah, the, the way their <laughs> relationship exists uh, is not maybe predominantly, but a substantial part of it is through argument. Uh, that seems to be one of the ways that they just seem to express their feelings for each other. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's maybe because they're struggling to uh, understand or properly express or channel them. Mm -hmm. um, but it does seem like, it, in that respect, that yeah, things have been kicked into a, a slightly higher gear. And in a way, this feels like a little bit of a turning point, a little bit of a hinge in the mm -hmm. in the plot overall. And this is chapter 29. So this seems like a good moment for uh, a hinge to occur, you know, um, especially, you know, if, if we, we fall into the tradition of emphasizing the first 80 chapters of the novel, right? There's a question of the authorship of the last 40. Uh, and so if we take, if we take the first 80 as a, a unit unto itself, 29 seems pretty significant. Um, yeah, you're hitting 30. So. <laughs> yeah. So do you want to just jump right in? Maybe. So how about we, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so is there anything we want to close up on from uh, last time? Yeah, what do you think? There isn't really too much to say. So we mentioned that Dayu flicks her, her handkerchief at, at Bayu, catching him in the eye. Um, and um, she pretends it was a kind of a, a, a mistake she was meaning to flick at something else. But um, yeah, I, I don't think there's too much to say there. Um, it, it reminds me just slightly of, you know how Feng Ying tells this like absurd story of how he got a black eye because a, a one of the hunting birds, like a hawk or a falcon or something, like flew past him and flicked him in the eye with its wing. Uh, I I was just reminded of that here, um, um, oh, because it seems kind of like so improbable as well. Um, I feel like in his case, it's maybe that he was just um, he got into a fight. Uh, I imagine that he's the type to to <laughs> you know yeah get into fisticuffs but uh, yeah um, okay so that that little scene having ended um, it begins with uh, Wang Xifeng um, who we've said before is you know one of the most important women in the Jia household um, you know she's this kind of ball of energy um, she kind of runs the whole household um, uh, and she um, has been making arrangements for um, the purification ceremonies due to begin on the first of the next month at the Taoist Temple of the Lunar Goddess, uh, which here I think is um, Qing, Qing Xu Guan, I think is right. Yeah, Qing Xu Guan. So right, right. clear emptiness, uh, basically. Um, and so Qingshu uh, is also, it's kind of a another term for uh, Yuegong, kind of the uh, the moon palace. Um, ah, got it. That we, we know in connection with uh, uh, Chang'e, all the kind of that, that mythological material. Um, yeah. And also the uh, a lot of the references to the, uh, the uh, Guishu, the cassia tree. Um, that we see, we've seen a few times, um, mm. in terms of like academic achievement. Yeah, it's somehow tied up in the yeah in the in this mythology of the moon, right? So we know that this time of year, it's we're getting into summer here, and it seems to be very very hot. So a common refrain in in this chapter and in subsequent ones is that characters are too hot, and it's making mm. them 
either kind of angry or frustrated or kind of lethargic um, and just uh, you know um, unwilling to to go out and socialize or do things I feel that a little bit today it feels like yeah. spring has already like sort of passed and I feel the summer heat already it's very frustrating uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's too fleeting I don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um, well Southern California will do that to you I guess um, to be honest it's the same <laughs> Hong Kong it's mm-hmm. just like you just hit a switch and suddenly it's unbearably hot for like five or six months <laughs> originally it's just going to be uh, Wang Xifeng and she's going to invite Bao Yu Bao Chai and Dai Yu to go with her to watch these plays but eventually it kind of spirals and more and more and more people get invited um, and then word spreads among the servants and each of them want to go so they convince their respective masters mm-hmm. or mistresses and eventually yeah before long kind of the whole the whole household the whole household is going right it becomes kind of this grand field trip was the it does right <laughs> the feeling i got um, yeah and 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 in the you know in common with most field trips it's uh, a bit disorganized and chaotic yes yes and so their arrival upon the uh the Dallas temple uh has a lot of kind of really rich imagery that also we can maybe touch upon i think that yeah I, uh, the, the scene one of the ones i've got um one of the ones I've got marked is the um, the scene where all the servants are listed. Basically, everyone is in all of their carriages, and it's all kind of listed out. Right. I'm not sure if we want to go through all of it. It's almost like there's a whole page, basically, of you know who's in which carriage. Uh, it's yeah. a great chance to to do yet another like maid review. Um, <laughs> it's almost it's too much to cover all of it. There are some interesting details that I want to um, highlight. One is that uh, Crimson is already has been like kind of reallocated to Shifeng. Um so that's mm. that seems like it's a, a done deal, so to speak. From just uh, one one thing, like from from the top, I just wanted to talk about how the household family members are are, I guess, mm-hmm. delivered because uh, none of them are walking themselves; they're all riding in carriages. Because it has this, it's an interesting show of how like um, everyone is kind of ranked. So you have Grandmother Jia as matriarch of the household on an eight-person palanquin. So she's being carried by eight mm-hmm. people. Um, and then each of Li Wan, Wang Xifeng, and uh, Aunt Xue, uh, Xue Yima, are on a four-person palanquin each. So they only get four carriers rather mm-hmm. than eight. Um, then... Dayu and Bao Chai share a palanquin, but with eight carriers. Um. Although it seems, are, are they? It sounds like they're they're in a like an actual carriage, rather. Oh, possibly, yeah. Um, oh well. Oh, right. uh, or is that the same? It's weird because in the in the Hawks, you're right. It does say they shared a carriage, but I think I got this from the Chinese. Let me just sorry, just give me two seconds. Um, Let's see here. Bao Chai, Dayu, Aran, Gong Zuo. Oh yeah, you're right. But what what is Uh It's just a some kind of. You're right. It's a carriage rather than a palanquin. Yeah. So sorry. So I guess well, I, the implication is that you know, it's almost like uh, you know, if you get someone to carry you by hand, that's the real luxury. 
using the yeah using you are, wheels. I don't know. That seems a little bit you know yeah. a, little, a little bit too modern. Yeah. You know, it's not. A, you know, it doesn't have that hand. It's a, that hand like touch. Yeah, so to speak. It's a little low status, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. So 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 Dayu and Balchai are singing are sharing a single uh, mm. um, carriage, as you said. There's a little bit of symbolism there. I thought maybe we we got our favorite character uh, Tsui, the 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 green or green mm. jade, right? And so this 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 um Babaochu, this uh, eight treasure uh, chariot carriage really is probably a better translation is uh has a a jade uh canopy and also um pearl uh curtains yeah kind of tassels yeah, yeah. curtains yeah yeah so Dayu and Balchai are sharing the pearl carriage uh, the, are sharing the jade carriage so yeah there's absolutely there's a and, and actually I found some interesting things about this um eight eight treasure uh, like insignia, uh, this has a, a kind of an old. This mm-hmm. has a long pedigree, um, and it, it seems like it was originally like an explicitly uh, royal uh, kind of pattern, which was uh, heavily re- regulated. Actually, in the the Tang legal code, there's one line where if anyone who tries to to fabricate this um, the eight treasure pattern could be subject to beheading. Oh wow. So it's a kind of sum, a kind of sumptuary laws then, you know, yeah, saying basically yeah. only a certain class of person is allowed to wear mm-hmm. or 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 have like a certain level of luxury. Yeah, and apparently the eight treasures. There's a Tong commentary that seems to suggest that uh, one of the treasures was um, transmitted from the spirits. It's the the Shen Bao. Then there's the Ming Bao. I guess the the uh, the treasured fate or something. Mm-hmm. And then there's the the Huang Di San Bao. The uh, so th- then there's like the, there's three treasures um, associated with Huang Di, and then uh, three treasures associated with Tianzi. Huang, Huang Di being the emperor here, or some is it, is, it, is that yeah, some other meaning? Yeah. Okay, cool. And then Tianzi being the uh, the son of heaven. So yep. three plus three, plus one plus one, you get your eight treasures. Ah, uh, got you. Um, so it has this kind of this whole sort of um, system behind it. But it's my 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 sense is that by this time in the Qing dynasty, it, it had become sort of a more, maybe less heavily regulated. Mm. Uh, so nobody's going to have the heads chopped accessible off. to, you know, just powerful families, if not the general um, public. So we should have no fear that Balchai and Dayu are going to be decapitated for riding in this. Not for this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so so then following behind them, you have the three Chuns, uh, mm-hmm. Ying Chun, Tan Chun, and Xi Chun, sitting together in a single carriage. Um, and this one is uh, red wheels, Zhu Dun, and a okay. kind of grand canopy, Hua Gai. Okay, um, not bad. And so yeah, so I, <laughs> I guess like less significant symbolic importance there. Um, and then not to forget, Baoyu himself is riding a very grand white horse, a splendid white horse. Uh, yes. With a with a silver saddle and kind of adorned with bright colors. I wonder if there's a bit of irony in this scene. I, I just imagine that like Bao Yu is he has really difficulty uh, assuming this kind of um, these uh, royal heirs, mm. and, and so I, I think there's a bit of irony in, in his you know riding atop such a um, elegant course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, he doesn't quite fit the bill of the yeah that kind of heroic figure. 
And, and then, okay, so after all of the family, we have all of the maids. So every single family member has brought all of their maids to attend on them as well, or, or maybe they're being brought along to just to enjoy themselves. A little bit of both. We see later in the chapter that it's like they're partly watching, but they're they take they're taking turns, um, kind of um, serving as well. It's kind of uh, oh, I see like a work study program. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. Do you want to talk about the names of any of the maids in particular? Uh, no. I, I, I mean, in, in another context, yes. I think it's funny that there's um, another maid called uh, Taiyun, which is to be um, distinguished from Taisha. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So I guess it's like sunset versus sun cloud. Uh, but it's, it's, they're, they're so similar. It's like mass produced almost. Uh, all, all these kind of um, elaborate images. I was going to say, I also thought it was a little surprising that um, Xiangling, uh, formerly known as Inglian, who was stolen from the, the Jen household back mm. in chapter one, um, mm -hmm. has herself her own maid. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So just as a reminder, yeah, she was what she was kidnapped as a child and she was subsequently uh, sold into slavery, really, and became a... a a slave or, or servant, I guess the line is kind of somehow a bit blurred in the society of the of the Jia household. Uh, and I think Xuepan, one of the young men of the household, has taken a particular shine to her. And his mother has had her made, uh, I think she was called a chamber wife. Uh, I think Wu Ziren or Wu Ziren. Um, and so, yeah, I guess this slight elevation in status is the reason why right. she... But less than a concubine, you think? It's, uh, but I mean, apparently, it's enough to um, be able to come to the show and to have someone attend upon you. So, um, um, it, it, that, that shows you the, the kind of the, the subtleties of, of like class and, and power in the society. Mm. It's you really have to kind of get your, you know, get your bifocals on. <laughs> it, it's funny that you mentioned the kind of like cut and paste or like I, I don't know. Um, that aspect of the names because by my count i think there are something like five or six different maids with bird names um you know mm -hmm. there's one named after ducks there's a parrot there's a nightingale there's a snow goose there's another parrot there's a you know quite quite a few um there are two that i wanted to touch on just in a bit more detail um and so these are the maids of uh li wan um who just as a refresher, is the widow of um, Bao Yu's older brother, Jia Zhu. And he died prior to the beginning of the of the, the narrative. Um, so we never really kind of met him. And she has this young son, Jia Lan, and she is almost unbelievable as a character because she's the kind of like perfect uh, model of um, the kind of dutiful widow uh, and mother and, you know, so she she kind of embodies, I guess, a sort of Confucian ideal of kind of, um, I guess, nobility and purity in a way. Um, and so she's often associated with, like, white, the color white, right? And the kind of, like, white silk. Mm -hmm. um, and so her two maids are, um, in the um, Chinese, are called uh, Su Yuan and Bi Yue. So it's kind of like a white cloud and uh jade moon roughly yeah 
Um, yeah. And so that yeah, they capture a bit of the same spirit. So in in a sense that the name she's given them reflect her own character. But what I really wanted to talk about was the Hawke's translation of these terms because I think they're quite good. So he's called them Candida and Casta. So Candida is these are both Latin names. Candida is kind of pure white uh, in in Latin from the verb to shine, hence candle, candida, candle, but also hence candidate, because in ancient Rome you have this figure, the candidatus, this is the person standing for public office, and they would have to wear this white toga um, ah, as part of that. So, so that's hence candida. So very strongly associated with whiteness, brightness, that yeah, kind of thing. Okay. And then j- jade moon, bia, is translated as caster, uh, which is the again Latin feminine form of castus, uh, and it means in a sense something like morally pure, chaste, unblemished, something like that. So uh, I just wanted to dwell on it briefly because it's, I think, a f- really really good piece of translation, uh, and really quite revealing as a window into her kind of character. Yeah. So, with all <laughs> with all of these people uh, uh, arranged all in one place, you know, horses and carriages, um, um, and all different people, there's this this phrase used, "churliang fun fun ren ma tsu tsu," which means that you know all the carriages were lined up one after the other, and the people and the horses were kind of milling around all in a cluster, and I certainly imagine this as being quite a kind of narrow little street um, and really kind of very crowded, very slightly chaotic, really. Mm. But maybe kind of exciting too, right? Yes, are, are, definitely. So, like, they're like their daily kind of activities, just due to the, the just the size and, and the scope of their kind of operation, are, you know, causes quite a scene. Yeah, and and I guess for a lot of the servants, they rarely get to leave the mm-hmm. the four walls of the yeah. house, right? Um, and so, having a chance to go outside is is genuinely as as kind of cause for excitement Um, there was something you mentioned earlier on which I kind of recalled just now which is um, I can't remember what it was you said exactly but there's a point where a couple of the different maids are are kind of arguing or bickering about various things you know so so in the Hawks it says you know uh, I'm not sitting next to you or you're squashing the mistress's bundle or (laughs) look you've trodden on my spray or You've ruined my fan, clumsy. <laughs> yes, yes. This is a really kind of endearing scene, I thought. Um, and so Joe Ray's wife, who's one of the kind of like more, um, I guess more important members of the servant class, um, she has to go and tell them off. And she says, you're out in the street now where people can see you. So please, <laughs> you know. And, and I think that you had touched on before, right? This this thing of like what, what normally goes on behind closed doors suddenly being revealed to the to the public and how that, they're worried that that's kind of somehow shatters the illusion, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I think they present a certain face to the outside world, and this is at risk of somehow tarnishing that, or you know. Yeah, I think so as well. Yeah, although at the same time, it's kind of a since we know these characters and we're kind of invested in them, you can also see it's just a sign that everyone's kind of having fun. Yeah, you know, uh, there's a kind of heightened passions and, and sort of the uh, the bickering and squabbling that kind of. Uh, attends those kinds of feelings. Yeah, and I, and also a lot of them are very young. You know, I think most mm-hmm. of the maids are probably teenagers, and many of them not very late teenagers. You know, 
Uh-huh. This really is a field trip. I was, I, I was like, that began as a metaphor, but now it's become just like a, a description. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. I think it's really spot on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the whole procession, with I think Baoyu at its head, um, proceeds up the road to this temple, mm-hmm. uh, and naturally it attracts quite a lot of attention from passers-by. Um, and yeah, they they arrive at the temple, um, and pass into the first courtyard. We get a kind of an, an interesting uh, description of um, some of the, you know, there, there's these like stone guardians um, depicting both local and also um, non-local deities of, of various kinds. Did, did you get any, any kind of... Yeah. I, I didn't find too much information about these particular gods. They, they seem to have a kind of possibly agricultural significance. Yeah, it lists out quite a few, right? And um, I found some info on two of them that I thought would okay. be interesting to share. So they proceed through the gate, uh, and there are guardians of the gate who I think, as you say, are, are like um, stone stone statues. And then she sees a kind of well-known pair, Qianli Yan, or Thousand mm-hmm. Mile Eye, basically, and Shunfeng Er, Swift Wind Ear, or like... Uh, in the Hawks, he says, yeah, thousand league eye and favorable wind ear. Um, and then you see other ones, the city god and local gods, you know, um, um, Cheng Huang and, and these kind of ones. Um, th- these two, thousand mile eye and swift wind ear, I wanted to touch on. So apparently they're traditionally presented as a pair. Um, in the Chinese novel, Journey to the West, C.O.G., they're apparently spirit generals of the Jade Emperor, According to another work from the Ming Dynasty uh, called uh, Feng Shen Yan Yi. So this is the creation of the gods or the, the investiture mm-hmm. of the gods. Um, there was a, a king of the Shang Dynasty uh, who was famously a tyrant called uh, oh. Shang Zhou Wang. The last king. Um, right. And he had two generals. Yeah, the, ah, the, is the, it? Oh, I see. The I see. classic right. tyrannical last king. Ah, I see. And whose tyranny justifies exactly. their, their he lost the being mandate. deposed yeah <laughs> of course of course so he had two generals uh, according to this legend which you know was written just casual two and a half thousand years later um he had two generals gao ming and gao jue so that's high okay. brightness i suppose um and high jue being kind of here i suppose like almost like consciousness or, or okay. sensation i suppose um, and so Galming could see 1,000 li, so a, a thousand miles, a thousand leagues, whatever you want to call it. And Galjua could hear in all eight di- directions, mm. respectively, basically. Um, and, and essentially, after their deaths, um, they became mm-hmm. these these kind of god figures. But because they were, I suppose, the 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 generals for this tyrannical figure, I I wonder if there's not some kind of like slightly a- ambivalent. Um, feeling towards them as god figures well you know um, sometimes the uh the representation of um of beings isn't necessarily a form of flattery it's like especially actually in these early like the shang era um vessels that you see with these like the, like these ferocious beasts and either the tautia and, and these um sometimes owls which were associated with evil at the time by representing them the idea was you were uh you were sort of controlling them and, and maybe even like stealing some of their power 
whereas you know there was actually kind of um, strictures against representing uh, the emperor um, that we we see in some other traditions you know uh, globally as well uh, and so I wonder if there's probably a similar logic going on here or at least a similar tradition rooted in that logic of um, by making these these fierce beasts uh, you're like having them guard your gates you're also controlling them in, in, in a in a certain way it's not too different from you know the tradition of um, uh, the, the five-headed uh, Cerberus uh, guarding the right the gates right. of hell or of Hades rather yeah right? I think that's about right yeah Sorry, I was just I was just glancing ahead at the 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 scene which immediately follows this. Do you do you want to talk us through it? The 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 scene with the candle snuffer. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I I mean, long story short, th- there's this um, kind of young Taoist trainee, in effect, and you know yeah. he, he's tasked with um, various menial kind of um, activities one of which is he's supposed mm. to go around and, and stuff the candle the snuff the candles um but apparently he like sort of chose the wrong time and he gets like swept up in this you know in this uh caravan of of, of ladies i guess um and you know he's like freaking out sort of i think other people were freaking out as well at some point he gets slapped in the face by Shifeng. It's unclear. Was that intentional or not? I, I think so. Yeah, I, I think I'm imagining that the, the candles in question, or the lights, are, are maybe up, uh, way up high. So you need something kind of on a long stick okay. to to snuff them or to trim the wick. Um, so he's carrying this kind of. It's described as only eleven or twelve years old. So some little kid carrying this like big long unwieldy stick, <laughs> going around tr- trimming the wicks. Um, and yeah, he kind of panics when these carriages suddenly start appearing in the courtyard, and he tries to run off. And yeah, at the same time, Shifeng has got out of her carriage, and she's going over to help Grandmother uh-huh. Jia get down from her, from hers. Yeah. And they run headlong into each other. And um, um, yeah, so she reaches out to smack him. In the Hawks, <laughs> it says it sent him flying. The term they use in the um, in the Chinese is "dali ge jindou," and Tindo okay. can literally be a somersault. Um, I think it's here. It's more like she just knocks him down. He stumbles. But I do like to imagine that she smacks him so hard across the face that he literally does a backflip. Um, I don't think so. I don't. I. I, I guess not. Um, I mean, the whole scene has a bit of an air of slapstick to it. I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, and I think it also serves as a kind of a means to demonstrate. Uh, grandmother jazz uh like softness or a soft spot for for children yeah uh, i think we've seen this actually previously she was um very fond of one of the, the child actors uh mm. and she like i think she gave the the actor some extra cash and some candies um yeah and so she feels bad for this um this young boy and, and she like same idea i i think she she gives him some some cash and she instructs them not to uh, you know, not to punish him. Yeah. There's this one weird comment she makes about him where she says, don't frighten him. These children from poorer families have generally been rather spoiled. And the and the term in Chinese is <laughs> jiaosheng guanyang, which, yeah, it's kind of like pampered or spoiled. Yeah, a chengyu, right? Yeah. And, and a, a, a set expression. And it seems such a strange 
way to describe uh, a child from a poor family who uh i don't know i don't know whether he would have been sold into his life by his his family or whether this is actually some kind of hope for advancement so they maybe saved up a bit for him to 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 be in this kind of role but the one thing i would not call uh growing up poor is a pampered or spoiled life and i wondered if this was really kind of projection on her part or something that comment also um stuck out to me i think yeah she's she she's certainly kinder to him than other people but this maybe is still something a bit kind of patronizing about her attitude uh, so i guess the the next major um incident for us to consider is probably the spitting <laughs> yeah. is it not yeah that's what my notes say uh, yes. in, in in all capitals the spitting the spitting <laughs> so do you want happens? to describe this one <laughs> sure sure so we'll remember that the the household is divided into two branches the rongua branch and the ningua branch and most of the characters we've been dealing with in this scene belong to the rongua branch um within the ningua branch there's a uh one of the main male characters uh jia Zhan, he's kind of middle-aged uh he has a, a son jia rong who was married to uh the character qin shi or uh qin ke qing uh who died by this point about 15 chapters ago and we know that jia Zhan is rather kind of dismissive or disdainful of his son mm -hmm. anyway he is in the midst of um organizing the kind of logistics He's talking to one of the lead servants, uh, Lin Zhixiao, about um, where the servants should be positioned, who's allowed where, you know, keep keep strangers out. Some people are allowed into this courtyard. Nobody is allowed into that courtyard, courtyard etc. Um, and at that point, he says, where is where is my son? Where's Jiarong? Um, and Jiarong comes bounding out of the bell tower, buttoning his jacket as he ran. Uh, so he has been sitting inside where it's cool, while his father has been fussing around outside in the heat. So he goes, Look at him, said Jiajun irately, enjoying himself in the cool, while I'm roasting down here. Spit at him, someone. So he <laughs> orders <laughs> one of the nearby servants to go and spit in his son's face, um, which he does. So long familiarity with uh, Jiajun's temper had taught the boys that he would brook no opposition when roused. One of them obediently stepped forward and spat in Jiarong's face. Then, as Cousin Jun continued to glare at him, this the servant rebukes Jiarong for presuming to be cool while his father was sweating outside in the sun. An amazing scene. Really, like, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine being in the state of mind where you, I guess you want to spit on somebody, but you're so... Um elite that you have to uh like delegate the the uh the labor of spitting it's, it's amazing <laughs> it it reminded me a bit of you know in like some like more trashy television there's a common like element which you'll see is that when someone's arguing someone will throw a drink in their face you know if two characters are arguing one of them may throw it right you know if they're holding a drink they'll splash it in their yes, face usually in a and restaurant I, I, yeah yeah, yeah, and I was wondering if someone was like, throw the <laughs> ordering one of their servants like throw your drink in his face like that. That was kind of the the equivalent I imagined. It's um, such a strange tension because you think like spitting on someone is the kind of thing that you would only do if you're just so completely um, taken with anger that you like you have no, you know, it's it's an like an anti-reflective 
gesture. It's it's so crude, but here it's it's yeah. it's entirely like kind of thought out to the extent that it's it becomes part of this like system of kind of like conspicuous pleasure. It has a little bit of like the kind of thing you'd see in Thorsten Veblen's theory of the leisure class. Like uh, it's it's like. Yeah. being unwilling to uh, engage in any labor whatsoever, not even, you know, you, you can't even be the executioner yeah. of your own uh, kind of no. vile, uh, the expression of your own vile sentiments. It's amazing. Yeah, he's so noble and elite that he orders the servants to spit in his face. Um, and, you know, and this is the same character that we think probably contributed to the death of Jarong's, uh, you know, beloved wife, right? You know the most positively yeah. uh, like portrayed character in this whole story. Um, so I don't I don't know mm-hmm. whether this is supposed to be ridiculous or supposed to like make us hate Jajen even more, or like, or, or or whether this is simply the author, you know, like recording them as he sees them. You know, this is just this is purely the facts, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, I feel like there's there yeah there is ultimately a, that. Uh... In this, in this book, mostly is exactly he's calling it as he sees it kind of thing. Um, but there's some, there's some hints of um, there's some hints of kind of uh, critique, slightly ironic, like okay. humor, I suppose yeah. in it. And yeah, and critique uh-huh. contained within that. Like we we talked about the title of this this chapter being the the greatly blessed pray for yet greater blessings. It's hard to say. And um, yeah, I mean they've come to the temple to to make an offering, but really in the in the kind of transactional nature of their, I suppose, religious practice, they're hoping for yet more kind of blessings to be laid mm-hmm. upon them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in that, I think there is a sort of like slight critique uh, or or recognition maybe that among those who are already wealthy, there's just constant like grasping ambition and aspiration for yet mm-hmm. more, yet more wealth. Like there's never enough. Okay. Yeah. They're they're. Um, they're like in a uh, a wealth and fame like Ponzi scheme or something. They're, it's it's out of control. It's, there's no fundamental <laughs> yeah. anymore. Um, yeah. Okay. So I, I think we did a, a we did we properly represented the spitting. Uh, I guess the next <laughs> major event is the introduction of uh, uh, Abbot Jung, and so this is kind of an inter- an interesting character. Maybe I should maybe just read. Um, there's a passage in the in the in the translation that kind of uh, sums up Abbot Zhang's credentials and his past. Uh, Cousin Jen was aware that Lo Abbot Zhang had started life a poor boy and entered the Taoist Church as proxy novice. A former emperor had, with his own imperial lips, conferred on him the title Doctor Mysticus, and he now held the seals of the Board of Commissioners of the Taoist Church. Had been awarded the title. Dr. Serenissimus. <laughs> Serenissimus? Dr. Serenissimus by the reigning sovereign and was addressed as holiness by princes, dukes, and governors of provinces. He was therefore not a man to be trifled with. So as for these terms, um, we're thinking that uh, Dr. Mysticus in the Chinese okay. is Da Huan Xianren, whereas Dr. Serenissimus is Jianren. And what he has as uh, holiness is Xian Xian. Um, so as for Serenissimus, this whole that the idea of Jenren is a kind of a distinctly uh, Taoist term. 
Um, when I was thinking about this, um, it makes sense of all these different titles. I was kind of reminded of the distinction you hear sometimes between um, transcendent versus transcendental, right? And so the idea being that something that's something that's transcendent is something that has kind of uh, started out in the ordinary world and has risen above, whereas something that's transcendental is arguably it's always been kind of a separate kind of discrete entity, right? Okay. And so I think in the, the, the Taoist tradition, these um, genren are usually uh, kind of like mortal beings that are transcendent in the sense that they've transcended m mortality. Um, and so this is what this is what Jia Jing is trying to be, right? I, yes. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, but whereas uh, I, I thought the term Dr. Mysticus uh, it's a little bit different. That's that's the Huan Shenren. It's interesting because we see the Da Huan again that we encountered before in Chapter Five. Uh, I, I guess it's a way to remind us that the Chapter Five like dream imagery was kind of part Taoist, part Buddhist, and so a lot of uh, these these ideas of the great fantasy. Maybe it's like it's tempting to associate that with. Um, Kind of the Buddhist notion that the the this mortal world is simply a dream, an illusion that has to be, you have to pierce through the um, fantasy or whatever. Um, but actually, it's kind of it's not so simple. There's also some Taoist imagery that's kind of being mixed in here, uh, and we see a little bit of that here in these titles. So, for want of a better comparison, is this like a um, pope figure or? Someone more like, I don't know, like Archbishop of Canterbury or whatever, you know, like someone of, this is really one of the top guys within the... It sounds like it, right? Within, I mean, yeah, it's ridiculous so maybe, to use the term, but like the Taoist church, as it were. Yeah, maybe not Pope, but uh, maybe one rung below. Would He's be a bishop, cardinal or maybe? something. Yeah, or cardinal, okay. Yeah. okay. It's interesting. Okay, yeah. Um, but what's interesting, what, what, what one thing that I noticed is despite him having all of these very highfalutin titles he refers to himself throughout as Xiao Dao. So the, the small or like the inferior Taoist, you know, uh -huh. which is obviously like a ridiculous affectation. Mm -hmm. but kind of a performative diminution kind of. I, your poor servant. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So whereas most people are excluded from this kind of inner sanctum where the most important people in the family are, he is very much allowed in. And he has a, a history with the the Jia. There's even a moment where he kind of like he gets almost like teary eyed thinking of 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 grandmother Jia's late husband. Yeah, um, uh, Jia Dai Shan, mm -hmm. um, who we've never met because yeah he's long long since dead. Uh, and so we heard from that list of titles that he originally was a, a proxy novice for him, right? Um, mm -hmm. Do you know much about what that entails, being a being a proxy novice? I haven't found much about it, but I know that it was mentioned in a in a previous chapter. I think in seventeen, when when we're introduced to the character Miao Yu or or Adamantina, um, it's said that she comes from a noble family. She was frequently sick when she was younger, and her family paid for many proxy novices uh, to essentially, yeah, to essentially act as her stand-in yeah. um, in like observing religious rites I suppose but none of that was really effective until she actually kind of took the veil yeah. herself 
um, and became a nun. Yeah, it really feels like you're getting someone to pray for you. And it's also probably a way for, um, I guess, members of poorer families who want to enter into religious service to it's it's like they're they're getting sponsored in effect it's it's, uh, it's an economic kind of um like a they're paying their tuition so to speak that's it isn't it yeah that's exactly what it is so yeah as you mentioned they um they have a little uh conversation mm-hmm. uh, abbot Zhang and grandmother jia and um they get to talking about grandmother jia's favorite topic of conversation Baohu. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and as you mentioned, yeah, he says that Baohu is just uh, just like his grandfather in his appearance and bearings and in his speech and action. Uh, he is, you know, just just like his grandfather. Um, so he's described as like uh, um, So like a gaozi is like almost like a like a facsimile or carbon copy, really, of the lord of the Rongguo mansion in those, back in those days kind of thing. Mm. Um, and so these are maybe just uh, kind of like stock compliments, but maybe but maybe there is some truth to this uh, that, you know, Bao Yu takes after his uh, long-lost grandfather, so to speak. Yeah, it's, it's not unheard of, right, for um, like traits in, in appearance to often kind of miss a generation. Mm-hmm. You often find that, you know, grand, grandparents and grandchildren share some traits that are completely missing in the, the yeah. intervening generation. Yeah. So while, yeah, so while they're all getting, while everyone is feeling very kind of teary-eyed about reminiscing over the um, uh, grandmother Jia's old uh, long-dead husband, now somehow kind of reincarnated in, in Baoyu, the abbot decides to change the subject to lift everyone's spirits and he mentions that he saw a very attractive mm. young lady recently and perhaps she would be a good match for Baoyu if he contemplates you know if he's contemplating marriage or or rather if they are contemplating marriage mm-hmm. for him anytime soon and grandmother Jia says well a monk told the boy's fortune and said that he should not marry young he should wait for a while before getting married so they're in no rush which is good because he's probably about 14 years old here, uh, <laughs> which does seem a bit mm. early. But she makes this revealing comment, uh, which is for her, breeding and wealth is not necessarily the most important thing in finding a, a partner for her grandson. It's that she should be physically attractive, but she should have the right kind of character. You know, the the thing that really counts to her is, um, yeah, that she has the personality wise, she's right. Um, which is interesting because I'm, I'm not sure that this view is shared necessarily by everyone right. in the household. And, you know, if Dai Yu were more attentive and less pessimistic, this would be a good sign for her, right? For her prospects. Yeah, that, that was exactly my line of thought. But, you yeah. know, it, it's kind of her personality. Completely agree. And, and, you know, a lot of people, this, this is kind of human nature to focus on on the negative and to, to enter into these kind of um, self-reinforcing loops of worry and despair and then illness and so on. Yeah. But before that, I guess what happens at this moment, another kind of change in mood is uh, suddenly Shifeng interjects um, and really brings the conversation down to her level, so to speak, where she simultaneously (laughs) um, is demanding the goods, so to speak, while also 
like insulting the the abbot, <laughs> where she she basically what, what's going on is she had given them a kind of amulet fu in, in the Chinese, which was intended to be to be um, like sanctified and charmed for uh, her her young daughter right who was recently born, and apparently it's been a while and she hasn't received the amulet back, and also in in the in the meantime. They've managed to kind of uh, finagle some nice satin, some nice cloth. And so she's kind of like, you know, where's my amulet? Pay up. And so he rushes off to get it and brings it back on a tray wrapped in, in red red satin. Uh, and, and of course, here's the joke. was like Taking a collection. But actually, the tray was mostly intended. Naturally, uh, Abbot, Abbot Zhang wants to check out uh, Bao Yu's... A famous jade. He wants to take the jade and show it to various um, different kind of Taoist mm-hmm. friends who are, uh, are visiting at the time. And so he, you know, initially they say, well, why doesn't Bao Yu take it, you know, and, and show them himself? You know, let's not have you running around, you know, 80 years old. But Abbot Zhang says, no, no, I'm, I may be 80, but I'm very kind of hale and hearty. I'm in good health. Um, but What's his other excuse? You know, he says, not only is he hale and hearty, but unfortunately, all of these Taoist disciples and disciples' disciples are <laughs> a bit smelly. Well, it's a hot day, you know, and some of them have been traveling apparently just for this opportunity, right? It's not hard to believe, I suppose. Like w- when we've had interactions with Taoists before, they're yeah, they're they're, they're traveling traveling figures. Um, and they've kind of given up on much of the, much of kind of ordinary life mm. and the expectations of human society, uh, including probably maintaining some level of hygiene. You know the, the kind of mystical monk, uh, Taoist and Buddhist monk figures that we see kind of dropping in and out of the novel. It's almost part of their style. They're often described as kind of scabrous, leprous, and yeah, you can imagine they're probably quite stinky. They they have a certain aura in foregoing certain, you know, telltale signs of civilization. They're on the edge, you know. Yeah, I think so. I I think so. Um there's a there was an ancient Greek philosopher, uh, Diogenes, who uh lived in a barrel and uh I think at one point pretended to be a dog or something and oh maybe I'm getting things mixed up. <laughs> but yeah, he one of his most famous like phrases is in a rich man's house, there's nowhere to spit but in his face. Um, <laughs> so he was—he had this very explicit rejection of like the idea of society and of wealth and like the material world. And so, imagining someone like that, you know, um, <laughs> like they—they uh, they live in a barrel and they kind of tweak the nose of society writ large. Um, they're kind of maybe sort of like hobos of a sort, you know? Yeah, but maybe yeah. So they've taken a different route. Uh, in this, in the, the Dallas establishment, then Abbot Jong is taken, right? But it's they're still kind of in dialogue in some ways. Maybe there's a tension there. It, it, it sounds as if Abbot Jong is more, he's kind of an institutional figure, whereas they're maybe um, they're keeping the legend alive. They're very much not institutional, are they? No, they they uh, they have not sold out. <laughs> yes. 